This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 464 for July 8th, 2015. We're brought to you this week by Casper, DiscountFilters.com, and Red Hat. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast, folks, and it's a new world. Uh, well, not really. It's really the same old world, but I wanted to say something exciting. We've gotten through a lot of news already this year, and there's more to come. Uh, we'll be seeing uh, public betas of El Capitan and iOS 9 and, and much more soon. This week, we're going to talk about a bunch of, of newsy things, things that have been happening, things we want to share with you and get your feedback on. And joining me, Glenn Fleischman, senior contributor to Macworld, is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Howdy, Glenn. How are you? I, uh, I'm good. We're, uh, we're in the middle of a heat wave in Seattle. I think we're in week three of like 85 to 90 plus weather, which in Seattle is uh, equivalent to 100 plus in uh, California. It's really hot for Seattle. <laughs> yes. We, we can't, we don't have, we have, time. we put some space air conditioners in for the night so we could sleep in our bedrooms, but uh, uh, it gets hot here and we're not good about dissipating heat. We're usually, we want this like moderate weather. We're good at that. We're not good at hot. Yeah, if it gets above ninety here, everybody freaks out. This is this is an eighty-five is our mark, but it's going to drop down to a balmy eighty-one in a few days, and then life will be better up here. But uh, uh, and then we have wildfires, which will add to smoke, and it's it's going to be a great summer. It's a great summer, folks. <laughs> Gotta love that West Coast oh. life. Oh lordy, yes. Well, West we are side. we're supposedly not in a desert, but uh, this week we got a few interesting things to talk about. I thought we'd lead off with uh, a very timely story. On Sunday, a firm called Hacking Team was surprisingly hacked. And, uh, I hate it when that happens. It's, is that called? That's <laughs> irony. It's not a poetic justice. It's just irony. Shot and Freud. Oh, my God. And the hacking team has attracted a lot of negative attention over the years from organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and other groups related to uh, privacy and reporter safety um, because they are an Italian firm that makes software that they sell to, uh, that they say is for the legal use of governments, like government agencies and national security groups to intercept data for legal purposes. And uh, that legal definition is a little tricky if you're not actually vetting your customers, which it's turning out that they may not have based on information. Uh, but so far, a 400 gigabyte dump of all their data, including invoices and price sheets and customer lists and communications, came out and um, should point out to listeners, there's this interesting thing, at least in the United States, related to leaked information. It's It can be highly illegal. It can be a crime that will send you to jail for decades, the rest of your life, to break in or take information from an employer and distribute it. But reporters are given this grant in the U.S. that if things are in the public interest, it's totally legitimate as long as you weren't involved in obtaining that information or encouraging <laughs> someone to give it to you. That becomes very murky. Uh, but if you get information, so the stuff's been released, you can report on it. So I would not report on, say, leaked nude photos of someone because that is not really necessarily in the social interest. But um, this definitely is because it's showing that the company uh, so far what we've seen and uh, you know, remains to be fully verified is that hacking team was dealing with foreign governments that they shouldn't have, uh, selling to c uh, countries that uh, should have been restricted uh, by, by being an Italian firm or because they do business with others. But the thing that was, uh, I think, particularly interesting to Mac users or Apple users is that uh, they sell a snooping tool that works for various smartphone platforms, and one of them is iOS. Uh, and a year ago, Kaspersky Labs and Citizen Lab, two different groups, uh, simultaneously released a report. They'd intercepted and decoded uh, this module and uh, explained that, uh, you know, kind of what it did uh, because there'd been a lot of rumors uh, around about it and they were both able to show uh, just over a year ago what this software did. I think it's DaVinci is the code name for this particular package. It's DaVinci and another um, that they use in tandem. And uh, so there was a warning at that point, if your iPhone or iPad was factory issued, not jailbroken, not broken to install non-Apple software, uh, then you were okay, except there was also malware that if they got onto a Mac and you plugged your iOS device in, the malware would jail jailbreak your iOS device, and then they could install the snooping software. So one security person I spoke to said, basically, don't jailbreak your device. And another said, yeah, and you should never plug it into a computer either. I was like, oh, you know, how can you, you know, never plug your phone into a computer <laughs> is really hard. But, you know, that's, I don't know, Susie, it seems a little, it's it's um, disturbing, but I think it's another reason why jailbreaking, even though it might be desirable, is dangerous. 
Yeah, I was never that into jailbreaking. I mean, I think it's interesting as a concept, but it seemed like too much trouble to me. And a lot of the things that people use jailbreaking to achieve earlier in the iPhone's life, you know, a a lot of that's kind of caught up on the on the legit side. And I feel like there's fewer reasons to jailbreak anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can do some cool like customization things or whatever and make your your home screen look different and your lock screen, but it's I don't know. It's not it's not super appealing to me, but yeah, and then just the risk. The risk is not worth the upside to me and this this proves that, you know, I was right all along. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember when it was kind of a, it seemed like a um, it was both relatively easy cuz Apple hadn't locked everything down. You could load like a, was a TIFF image with a malformed header or something and it would jailbreak the phone. It's like, woohoo, go to the site, yeah. jailbreak. And and especially when there were fewer apps, when there were fewer free apps that did things. And I think the ecosystem was still developing. Um, I still believe Apple should allow a side load button where you could like hit an advanced thing, say, I know what I'm getting into. I'm an advanced user. I understand this might void my warranty and Apple won't support, blah, blah, blah. Click OK and then tap load other apps and then let me in a, and they could still sandbox. They could still provide an environment, but just like in OS 10 where I can install any app, but gatekeeper gives me controls about which kinds of apps I want to install. And I can go from Mac app store only to app store plus signed apps or Mm -hmm. all apps, which is I've marked as very dangerous, but you can do it. And I think it would be nice if iOS uh, had that option as well. Then if they have that option, then you don't need to jailbreak it. Apple can still keep all the security controls in place and let people install in maybe a highly sandboxed environment or whatever they want to do, uh, apps that are under less control. And uh, that would reduce the interest in jailbreaking. It would, it would kind of cut the heart out of the commercial market for selling jailbreaking uh, solutions and give malicious third parties and these sort of government agency supplying software makers uh, less of a knife to crack that oyster open, too. Yeah. I don't know. It's a, uh, it's uh, yeah, because I think they get, you get down into the jailbreaking as a moral thing. It's like, well, you know, it's not immoral no, to jailbreak. No, it's not immoral. No. You, I mean, you bought the phone. You should be able to do whatever you want. And it's cool that Android lets you sideload apps. You know, I, I definitely kind of admire that about that platform. Um, I don't know. It's just it's it's not even that in the 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 good things you could do with it aren't worthwhile. It's just that there's there's so much risk. Like you, as soon as you open up. Um, ways for people to to put extra things onto iPhones. There's just there's going to be people that are trying to exploit that and 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 put bad things on there. And your iPhone is, I mean, you're it's with you all the time, you know, and it knows your location and it knows like so much about what you're doing at any given moment that it's just scary to me to think that someone someone could access that because. You know, I wanted a different app launcher on my box screen. <laughs> it's true. So, yeah. It's true. I mean, it's, it's sort of sad that uh, that the two things are bound together, that loading apps uh, that Apple doesn't authorize and uh, security issues are, are tied into one bundle. And if they could unbundle them, it would be uh, less of an issue. There's also – now, the thing that will be interesting, I, I think, with this release of massive amounts of information – and from what we know, this is the first trove. It's not necessarily uh, – I'm not sure if it's necessarily the entire – uh, trove, but um, th- there's going to be huge changes because it's basically every company, Apple, Google, and and many smaller firms are going. You know, I shouldn't say Microsoft smaller; they're a little smaller than Apple these days. But uh, <laughs> but every company that makes an operating system, makes a browser, makes any kind of networking system that could be affected by this. Um, there was a Flash zero day apparently in there that hadn't yet been released. So the Trove actually created a, a zero day situation that uh, that just by looking through it, there's some calc calculator app thing. I saw some description of um, so people could actually be attacking Flash, you know, Adobe Flash yesterday. Uh, but anyway, it's going to make all of those makers are all going to be pouring over this stuff because they're going to want to know, okay, how do they get into our systems? We're going to have more robust systems and all of these holes are going to be closed. And uh, uh, and I'm particularly worried and interested in the, the Mac malware, which there are – you know, as we know, you can't just like install malware on a Mac, but there are people get confused. You know, you go to a site and it says you want to download 
some freeware and you know it's legitimate, like VLC for video playback. Mm-hmm. And they'll wrap it in a package that's basically full of malware or it has MacKeeper in it, which MacKeeper forswears that that should happen, but it's still in there and because they have affiliates and blah, blah, blah. So you install this thing and you're an average user and it says, okay, when install VLC, you need to give us your administrative password or whatever. You type it in and uh, like you would with any software and then it installs all this crud or, or malware on your uh, system. So it's not impossible to force people or convince people or someone breaks in, gets physical access to for for government targets. They'll install it in the computer so that they can then grab your iOS iOS device later. Um, I think a lot of these attacks, the things in the hacking team were largely about uh, focus things where you're trying to get a specific target or set of targets. So it's not like they had the ability to... uh, jailbreak a million iPhones at once. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll probably see <laughs> future Apple security update. Only this problem fixes a variety of issues related to uh, blah de blah you know, thanks to hackers. Um, <laughs> that'll be the... This, be so the, the hacking team is an Italian firm, and the I just saw an email on one of our PC World colleagues shared one of the leaked emails to our, our group chat room. And it's from the CEO of Hacking Team emailing someone else on Hacking Team about um, like the, one of their potential clients uh, wanted to use uh, you know encrypted communications, and the CEO replied to the to his employee, um, "Hi Philippe, we might use PGP, but I am skeptical about encrypted communications with potential huh. partners. We don't have anything to hide." Oh my God! <laughs> well, and now they so, don't. So yeah, hacking team was hacked. I should point out the reason we do have all this Schadenfreude is that they appear to be you know, and this will be. I don't know if they'll wind up getting sued or or charged with crimes or whatever, but they appear to be uh, violating um, local international law with some of their actions. And they also – there's contradictions to many of their public statements about what they do. So the yeah, It sounds so shady. It sounds like oh, organized yeah. crime. Like as a computer company, it's really – There's a bunch know, of companies like this. Uh, I hadn't heard of them before this happened. So. You remember uh, Kevin Mitnick, the uh, the guy who went to jail yes. for – Yeah. Well, and, you know, he was probably jailed somewhat unjustly for what he did. He had two much of a penalty for his actions, I would argue, because, you know, he he was mucking around, but he wasn't any great criminal mind. He just, he knew how to break into systems, whatever. But he, uh, he's got a company now that sells zero days to whoever he wants to. And there are a bunch of companies, there's a whole market, there are public and black markets for uh, criminals all over the world, or I shouldn't say criminals, programmers find a zero day. And this is why there are zero day competitions um, at Google and other companies or independent groups doing these where they offer bounties. Be like, okay, if you find mm-hmm. a severe rated bug in Chrome, we will pay you $30,000 because they're trying to prevent these bugs from being sold to criminals and to governments. And um, it's a huge issue. So Mitnick sells to kind of anybody. There's been some problems about that. And uh, based on, there's actually a new uh, a, a international agreement coming out of Blank Out. Wizenock, but it's a uh, uh, which there's been a lot of anger about, and this may actually be the thing that makes sure that it happens <laughs> is that it was going to restrict the ability of individuals and companies to sell these kinds of exploits in order to protect the world better. But um, the issue is governments can still develop them, so because they have the resources. Uh, let's talk about something happier, something fluffier <laughs> for a moment, because I want to thank one of our sponsors this week, Casper Mattresses. They have nothing to hide except. That they send your mattress in a Except box. Except value. They hide value. They send. They hide their mattress in a box, and you open the box, and the mattress inflates to full size. So, so what is Casper mattresses? They're a obsessively engineered American-made mattress that they offer at a shockingly fair price. And uh, if you're a MacWorld listener which you are because you're listening, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase when you go to casper.com slash Macworld and use the code Macworld. So here's the deal. Casper brings together two different kinds of comfortable technologies, latex foam and memory foam. So you've got just the right sink and just the right bounce no matter how you sleep. Now, now here's the other thing. I, I love all the different aspects about this company because they're, they're cutting out the middle person. They're selling to you directly, so that makes it cost less, right? It's about $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. It's much cheaper than almost anything you could buy in a store. But the other thing is, they even though they send it to you in a box and you open it up and the mattress fills, it blows up into the real size, uh, they also have a risk-free trial and return policy. So you can try it for 100 days. If you're not happy, they'll pick it up. They're going to figure out how to get it back in that box. You don't have to do it. So... 
If you're interested, you can go to casper.com, that's C-A-S-P-E-R.com, slash Macworld. Use code Macworld and get $50 towards any mattress purchased. Terms and conditions may apply. So thanks to Casper for being one of this week's sponsors. Uh, and now on to um, a slightly related topic. Uh, Susie, I brought this to your attention because I know this, this is a little obscure, but there's been a lot of conversation about uh, is Safari the new Internet Explorer because... A very nice fellow named Nolan Lawson wrote uh, a, a blog post that he did not expect to blow up. He wrote this thing because he's a he writes apps and he likes web apps and he's involved in the Android world. And he wrote this thing about you know Apple doesn't seem to come to these conferences. He was just at an event called EdgeConf and they don't seem to be up to date on web standards, which is making it really hard for people who write web apps uh, because they have to use lots of different technologies. They might be able to use one thing for Firefox and uh, for, uh, for uh, Mozilla's Firefox and for Google Chrome and the Android browser, which is you know, related, and uh, maybe even Internet Explorer will support it. And then they have to do all this retrograde stuff. They either have to kind of dumb their web app down to work with Safari, mobile, and desktop, or they have to put in all these things to sort of regress some functions or degrade some functions. So maybe if you're using Safari, it's like the old works best in Netscape Navigator. <laughs> if you remember. Oh, man. Do you still see sites with – I still see sites that say works best. And, 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 yeah, and, every once in a while. It's funny. Like a lot of times they're work sites. Like we just got a new expense reporting system oh and it, it looks like it's from 1992. The, just the the design of it, and so I was worried sad. that it was not going to want to work in Safari. I still have. That, I still have uh, to use that develop menu every once in a while to oh, have Safari oh, tell the site that it's a different browser. It's a great tip. So right, yeah. Develop, and then you can do browser agent, right? And you say, I'm you know Internet Explorer six or something yeah, like you, that. Yeah, it's develop user agent, and it has all these different. It has Internet Explorer nine all the way back to seven. Oh, it has Google Chrome for Mac or Windows, Firefox for Mac or Windows. And a few older versions of Safari. You can even spoof uh, Safari for iOS, which is kind of cool. Oh, so, yeah. It's so useful yeah, to it's, preview. It's for developers who are writing you know, web things to be able to test them without having to open you know, nine different browsers. But it also helps every, every once in a while you still get to a site that's like, you have to you look at this Internet Explorer. And you just <laughs> laugh and laugh and t- say, okay, fine. I'm, I'm on Internet Explorer now. Poof. Well, so I've been developing websites since 1994. 1994. That's awesome. And I was totally in high school. You were. That's yeah. it's such, you're such a young person. I'm, <laughs> no. I'm, I'm the elder here now. Ah, now I have control. Uh, <laughs> I'll wave my cane at you. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so this is one of the things that that changed in the early 2000s was uh, with the efforts of the folks who are now um, uh, a, a list apart. There's a lot of people involved with that, like uh, uh, Zeldman and uh, Eric Meyer and so forth. There are t- and, uh, 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 forgetting a million people, but there is a whole movement in the early 2000s because IE 5.5 and IE 6 were disasters for web standards, and uh, a lot of stuff didn't work. And there was a, becoming a diversity of browsers because Microsoft's uh, stranglehold had broken a bit, especially with the resurgence of the Mac. And even though Microsoft made, uh, I once met the guy who was the product manager for the last version of. Uh, IE for Mac, if you remember that version, uh, I think it was five. Wasn't five five the last for Mac that they released, or five zero? Oh man! Uh, and it I was don't like know. the most compliant, compatible browser available. And um, uh, he got into trouble for that. There's a story behind that because anyway. So antitrust lawsuits later. Uh, we'll slide over that. Um, but the um, thing is, so so early two thousands, we had really great diversions in what could be done. And there was a lot of interesting work going on in standards groups because standards groups for the web, they weren't about let's make some tweaky thing happen. It was more like, how do we get the same experience no matter what browser you're using? And then the browsers can compete on performance and maybe add-ons or whatever, but you want everything to work the same. And that was the promise at one point of Java. It was write once, run everywhere, and that didn't pan out, right? Java is turn more into a server-side technology these days, and it powers a lot of sites, and it powers, uh, you know, Android is Java-based, and um, turn into a different thing, right? But the web, strangely, uh, became the place where you could write apps that would work everywhere. And, and then Google, you know, as it came out with docs and other web apps that showed the potential of it, um, these folks who were advocating standards made inroads, and you had like IE7, which was oceans better 
than IE6. And so Windows finally could do a bunch of things with its native browser. And Apple stepped up because they needed their own browser. They decided they wanted to go their own path. So Safari, they put all this effort into uh, – was that KHTML originally and then became WebKit? Um, mm-hmm. You know, Apple's put in millions of person hours into an open source project and then they build their own stuff on top of it. Then Google, uh, you know, kind of came up with a split. So there's actually a separate tree of development now between Apple's WebKit and what Google's doing with what used to be a similar core. Um, so all this going on, you know, so you have, you can go to a website and you get, uh, Tremendous interactivity. And sometimes I'm on my iPhone and I can't tell the difference between being on a website in Safari and using a native app. But yeah. so what Nolan wrote about was he's like, you know, look, at this point in time, Apple seems to have withdrawn its interests. Like they don't have to fight as hard. And there's a lot of new, interesting things that have been developed and are being deployed widely that make it easier to write better, reliable software that runs in a web browser. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. And the issues about native apps, it's expensive to develop them. Um, you know, so is Apple intentionally holding back technology or are they setting priorities? Like, are they actually trying to keep developers from, you know, making desirable web apps by not implementing the latest and greatest stuff? And, and when latest and greatest is sometimes two to five years old, by the way, it's not, you know, a standard that was developed in the last week and everyone's put it into nightly builds of their developmental browsers by Chrome and whatever. It's like, no, this is stuff that's actually been kicking around in some cases for years and is well implemented in, say, Firefox and Chrome and maybe well or or in process in IE. I mean, yeah, Apple-, Apple likes to kind of wait and see on things. They don't like to just jump right on new things right away. But but yeah, like you said, these th- that's not the case here. Like these are things that that they could be using, and a lot of people argue that they should be using. So, do you think it comes down to kind of the web versus native thing, and Apple's sort of silently casting its vote for native apps being better than web apps? Oh, I, w- I wonder. I just think I actually think uh, the priority issue is an interesting one. Is is it's not that Apple. I, I think Apple may not think it's as important to them these days because they've achieved a really high level of performance with what they've done. Because, I mean, you know how, uh, I don't know if you've seen these benchmarks for JavaScript, but you look back a few years at how fast JavaScript could run in mobile and desktop browsers, and it was pokey. I mean, you could be waiting there to watch letters be painted on the screen is what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And then the competition, because of Google's web apps, really kicking the pants off some other people's software, you know, and even desktop software, you know, Google Docs changed Microsoft's entire philosophy and it proved that you could have really effective web apps. So then the competition became how fast can we make our JavaScript libraries function? And you'd see these increases like, you know, this now tests 10 times faster than it did before, which, and and so you have something that's uh, JavaScript's an interpretive programming language. You write it as script and it loads in a page, but there's been all these processes put in place that now optimize it and make it run. I mean, it's not as fast as native Objective C written for you know native iOS apps or 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 C or uh, Objective C for Mac OS, uh, but you're starting to approach some of the benefits of that, so it doesn't feel like an entirely different experience. But having done that, Apple's like, look, we have a fast browser, it does all this stuff, uh, and that's not their focus. So I wonder if they're not deprioritizing it in the sense of saying we don't want good web apps more like they're like eh we'll get there it's just you know we got all this other stuff we got swift too to get out and and whatever yeah. <laughs> i mean that may be too glib on my part but i don't i don't know that they're intentionally ignoring it as much as they may just not care i mean look i went through the newsstand experience with my, with the magazine app right and uh uh i never felt like apple was being malignant <laughs> Out or malice intentional about a newsstand. I think they tried it. It didn't work the way they wanted, and they kind of shunted it off to the side, and it took two releases for them to essentially kill it and unbundle periodical apps, which will now just be like regular apps. And, uh, and you know, they've changed. And I think, so I think that was benign neglect. They just didn't care enough because it didn't work for them, and they had other priorities. And I wonder if this falls into that same category. Maybe. The other thing I was thinking is that Apple likes to kind of tout Safari's um, efficiency. So Mm -hmm. I was using Chrome for a long time, and then I started getting to a place where I wanted to use my laptop not plugged in um, more and more. Yeah. A lot of times I'm using it plugged in at a desk, and it doesn't really matter. And I noticed that when I tried switching from Chrome back to Safari that – even just closing Chrome and opening Safari, the little battery, you know, remaining estimated time, which I know is just an estimate, would like shoot up two hours instantly. <laughs> so, 
so maybe there's something to that too where they're like, okay, like we know what kind of hardware this is going to run on and we know what we can put in it to make it as efficient as possible without the end user noticing too much. And if the developers you know, have to use different APIs or different tools than they want to use, that's kind of their problem, but we're, we only care about the end users, which is what reasonable. Rene Ritchie said. Like he wrote a response to the first column that he said that um, – Safari isn't the new IE, it's the user-centric web, and saying, like, yeah, like, Apple's just kind of focused on the user, and, you know, developers have to kind of figure it out. Um, so then uh, Nolan Lawson's second column was like, yeah, you know, I, I disagree with, with his premise, but... Well, he's, and he's got the focus of he's trying to do something. I mean, like the noble goal of web apps is that they work, whether they're free apps or, you know, for volunteer organizations or individuals or their, their paid services that you subscribe to. His noble goal is, look, I just want this to work for you everywhere it works. Can we just have it work everywhere? Please, please, please. Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, you could say, like, if you're a company like Google, Google makes native apps everywhere. They don't, the web apps are not nearly as critical to Google as they were a few years ago because they make, and, and Microsoft makes native apps everywhere. So the main Major companies and, and Apple, instant, interestingly, barely makes anything for any platform besides iOS, OS X. They haven't updated Airport Utility for Windows for years. Um, you know, iTunes is probably the only. Is that iTunes the only software they really keep up to date on the Windows side? I now? guess. So, and they do their own web apps. They have I work on the web. Yeah, we love that. Uh, <laughs> that should be proof to Apple. What's going on? You know, but I should I should point out like there's a, the parallel thing I've written about this in the security side is that Safari and iOS and OS 10, um, they it doesn't get the latest important security updates. So there's this thing about mm. I've written about it's really it's like both. If you're not interested in it, I totally understand. I'm not going to give you a hassle. No, no. Let me explain more to you about certificate pinning. But if you have any <laughs> interest in, like, why, you know, what is making the web insecure? What would make it more? And the internet in general. And uh, and pinning is one of these weird things. You can go read my private icons. But where, when there's a, a secure, uh, a digital certificate that identifies um, a website, so you can have a secure connection to it, that certificate could be issued by any of hundreds of certificate authorities worldwide. And there's been a lot of issues with that. In fact, the latest security update from Apple we talked about last week uh, right. removed some of the authority of the Chinese uh, CNNIC uh, because of them issuing a certificate they shouldn't have. So like certificate pinning, there's now a, um, a tool available called HPKP that is supported, I think it's in both Chrome and Firefox, but not IE and Safari. And it lets websites say, only accept certificates from us that are issued by these specific authorities or only accept these particular certificates, I think more particularly. And that prevents them from being spoofed if there's a hack of a certificate authority, among other things. And Google has this uh, for its own domains. It's built it into Chrome and it's using it in other ways. And this has allowed Google to find some things that have gone bad on the web because they know that certificates are being issued uh, by parties that shouldn't. Um, so even that, I wish Apple would step on. And that's not a step up. And that's, you know, security standards not uh, tech standards. Uh, but you know, the thing I wanted to bring up, um, which I know a bit from having developed an app, I wasn't the software developer. I did a lot of the, so Marco Armin, I should make clear, he created the magazine, that's capital, T capital M, uh, and uh, hired me as the editor. And then I bought the publication from him and also the app. And so I reworked some of the back end that he developed to create a more robust, responsive web app version of the site for people without iOS and, uh, and hired developers to help me with the uh, iOS site because I'm not an Objective-C programmer. And going through that experience, it's very interesting because you can see so clearly, like, you know, I can't. You can't do notifications with a web app. I mean, not. You can do notifications in Safari on the desktop, but you can't notify people in iOS of a new issue or or do anything there. You can't do. Um, I think this was one of the key aspects that uh, that Nolan was writing about. Uh, although he's, you know, he went into a, issues about the specific standards. Uh, you can't do offline storage so uh, in a reliable fashion. It's sort of a weird thing. So let's say you are. Um, classic example, Google Docs. You're working on a document. You want to work with it offline. Well, while HTML5 uh, and all the browsers support you being able to push data into a local database, and sometimes you get a pop-up that says, hey, uh, have you seen this? You know, application such and such wants to use uh, 10 kilobits of storage, or it wants mm -hmm. to store stuff on your machine. You say, okay or not. And that's offline storage, and there's a lot of different related standards for that. Uh, so I, I want to edit my document. I want to read an issue of a publication, whatever. The way Safari works, and the way really most browsers do, but Safari in particular I think is more limited and peculiar, you can't rely as a web developer that 
any information you push to a user's browser will be available later because those caches are small and they're purged. So even though someone might have gigabytes of storage available, you might put you know two megabytes on and it might just get dumped. So you can't guarantee an offline experience. And I think that's a big thing. It makes it harder even in an era in which we have continuous connectivity. So, um, and background downloading, that's another thing. You, know, you can do that. Native apps do background downloading. They do reliable storage. Like native apps and iOS will not dump data. I mean, it can be a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got apps. You want them to. What's, is it iMessage? Like, you know, have you ever figured out how to purge iMessages? Um, you know, you'll say like it's got 400 megabytes of, of or a gigabyte of message data. And you're like, why does iMessage storing a gigabyte on my iPhone? What What's this about? Yeah. You can't purge it. Yeah, it's all those little videos and photos people send you. Yeah, and they'll stay forever. So anyway, I don't want to go on too long about it, but I think I think his point was he was concerned that like Internet Explorer became its own little walled garden, and there were things like ActiveX, which he isn't saying Apple's doing anything like that, but uh, it's just that Safari hasn't kept up, and thus it um, it it's holding back the ability for, let's say, cool, interesting things to happen at an affordable price because native apps are expensive to program mm -hmm. and they're particular. You do them for a platform. Uh, and web apps, even though you have to customize some things for different platforms and browsers, they're, I want to say they're cheaper. Like, and I say that, and there'll be programmers who'll say, no, no, it's not cheaper to develop a web app. You still have to put all the work in. It's like, yeah, but <clears throat> you get more of a bang for the buck. If you do it right, it'll work on a lot of platforms and browsers without the effort of require to do native programs for each and without the specialized knowledge. I can write web apps and I'm not a serious programmer. I can't write Objective-C apps or Java apps. I just can't do that. I don't have the time in my life left to learn to program those and do them in a way that I think would meet the ability of what I can do on the web. So. Well, and if you did, you, I mean, you still have to get it by Apple to get it on people's devices. Right. It's like disintermediation, right? I mean, you, you, it, it, there may be a way to get it on, on Android, as we talked about, but uh, Apple could reject it and then where you're at. And, um, uh, I know I wrote a piece for Six Colors, for Jason Snell's Six Colors, last fall after the magazine shut down, or when I was on the process of shutting it down, because I wanted to enumerate, like, what is the ecosystem? And there's things like payment, notifications, offline downloading, you know, discovery of apps, which is weak in the App Store, but it's still mm, a thing. Yes. Uh, the imprimatur of Apple, you go to Apple and they're like, hey, this app works on our, our on, or uh, Google or Microsoft. Hey, we approved this app in our store. So there's a, that means we're sort of putting ourselves behind it, maybe Apple more than the others because of how it locks the store down, but uh, Google Play is certainly a, hey, this is in the Google Play store. It's not on some website. Um, and, you know, payment may eventually be solved. Like, there, there's not like there'll be a web payment mechanism that works everywhere, but things like Square Cash and other really simple ways of doing payment via a website where you're not trying to punch in your credit card on a tiny screen, <laughs> screen from scratch, like, these things will happen, and, and I think that'll make a difference. Um, well, we have other topics, so let me... Uh, let's, uh, not, I mean, not to dwell too much on that, but it's an interesting thing. You should read the original articles and the responses. We'll put links in, in the show notes because I think um, I don't think anyone's accusing Apple of being trying to build a walled garden so much as not opening their garden to outside visitors to come and smell <laughs> the flowers. It's not a wall. It's That's a true. force field. Well, speaking of smelling the flowers, we should thank another sponsor new to us this week, discountfilters.com. A site at which you'll find top quality household filters at a fraction of the price. Now, Susie, I have a story about filters. Is uh, We had a furnace in our house for 20 years that, that died. It died young. It died young, and we were okay with that because it was a terrible furnace that we hadn't paid for. Previous owners had. I did not know a filter should have a furnace and had a repair person come out at some point and say, your furnace was built without a place for a filter. Do you know what's going into your burners? Like, no. So they built a box to stick a filter in and the stuff that show oh okay so the worst <laughs> job the worst job i have in the house i have a series of jobs i call onerous jobs and my wife and i divvy these up because we are a happy family and one of the onerous jobs is cleaning our filters because it's horrible but then you look at what we didn't breathe oh my god yeah <sighs> so you know but the thing is filters are expensive you go to a store you know hardware store you try to find them online it can be very difficult so discountfilters.com has one goal in mind. They're going to make it easy for you to buy filters at a good price. They're going to give you free shipping, great customer service, and returns for every order. Uh, and they, they're 
promises hassle-free customer service. And, you know, if you buy stuff online, you buy random parts and things. You know, it's hard to find an outfit you really trust. This is their intent. This is what you're going to them for. And they have filters that will match any fridge, furnace, or AC unit. They can also help you. They have online finders uh, that will help you find the right filter and experts you can talk to. So they're trying to create an easy and convenient buying experience, and they will remind you when it's time to replace your filter and say, hey, you want us to send you another one, uh, which is also a great thing because who wants to remember? <laughs> who wants to remember when to change the filter? I've got some reminders. My thermostat will pop up with something and I ignore it. And uh, this is a way to avoid that. So here's the deal, though. Uh, if you'd like an even extra bonus, if you go to discountfilters.com, that's filters with an S, slash Macworld, you get 10% off your order. So discountfilters.com slash Macworld, get 10% off and breathe a little more freely. I am a uh, heavy allergy and pollen sufferer, and I know I appreciate the filters in my furnace and in my air conditioners and in other pieces of <laughs> things that I have in the house. Uh, so remember to swap your filters, folks, and uh, visit discountfilters.com slash Macworld. And thank you for sponsoring this episode of the Macworld podcast. We have... Um, Filters brings up a related issue. It's hard to figure out what works with what. One might call that a compatibility problem. Yes. So uh, there's some. You, Jason Snell just wrote a column about compatibility. You had some thoughts about about how comp compatibility. It's not just a computer problem anymore. It's not just about what software works on my machine. What's that about? Right. Well, I mean, everything's a service now, and everything's connected. And you think that that would make life more convenient and pleasant, and, and in a sense, it does. But it also introduces all of these problems. So. So Jason's column, the idea of it kind of uh, germinated from um, the announcement by Sonos. Everyone loves Sonos. Yeah. They do the uh, multi-room audio. And I, I mean, a lot of companies do these multi-room audio ones. Sonos has kind of its own system for, you know, how the audio gets passed around your house. And everybody loves it. It's great user experience. They're kind of pricey. It's an investment. But the people who have taken the plunge and gotten Sonos, everyone I know who has it is like, it's the best. Like, just just bite the bullet and pay the money and get a Sonos and you'll just love it. Former um, Apple engineers, I think, founded that company. Yeah. Right. John Seff wrote an awesome article um, when we were both at Tech Hive that was uh, entitled... How I learned to just stop worrying and just buy a Sonos. God, I remember so. when it seemed horribly expensive, but then it was like, you know, it was. It's it gotten better. Yeah, it's gotten cheaper. Yeah. It's also, at the time, uh, I don't know, it, 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 is, it was expensive, but what they delivered was superb. So you're like, yeah. all right, if I do this thing, then it just works. So maybe it's worth paying it instead of assembling like 15 different things myself that don't really do what I want. Right. It just works, but now it doesn't support Apple Music. Right. So they've said that, yeah, okay, we're working on it, and we're going to get it by the end of the year. I mean, that could be September. That could be December. We don't really know. Um, but, yeah, so if you've shelled out thousands of dollars for this for this, uh, for this the system, I mean, you, you might not have paid that much. But if you paid significant money for your Sonos system, you're sort of just stuck with the services that it supports right now and that they're working on it, and I'm not trying to, you know, blame Sonos. But, but I was just like, you know, back in the day, the – the, the music all came through wires and everything played on everything and we just didn't have to think about this. Like this is a new layer of complexity because everything's a service um, now. So so Jason, Jason wrote about that and he found, you know, other parallels. He was like, what about your car? Like a lot of the new cars are supporting CarPlay and Android Auto, oh, but yeah. some of them are only supporting one or the other, and that's really weird. Like when you're shopping for cars, you don't want to have to stop and think like, does this car like work with the cell phone that I have? Like that's just that's bizarre. Um, oh, yeah, so, I hit this on the road. I got a rental car as a Ford Focus, and the the rental people. I was supposed to get a Prius, and they're like, "Well, look, we're out of Priuses." I was trying to save gas, right? expenses. And they're like, but we'll give you a full tank of gas and a Ford Focus with six miles on it. I'm like, don't give me a new car. I don't want a new car. <laughs> Those Ford Focuses are really fun, though. They I would are, never I buy like, one, but whenever I rent one, I'm always like really stoked to, to drive it I'm around like, You're for freaking me out, though. I don't want a car that's that new. Give me one that's a little bit older, but uh, you know, I don't want to ding it up. But new uh, car smell. But they had, you know, has multiple interfaces, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a good driver. I try not to do this while I'm driving, so I sit there in the car a lot before I drive off and like start plugging things in, and you have to set stuff up, and, you, and this is, you know, new car experience. If I bought the car, I'd get used to it. But even the, you know, I plug it in, and sometimes uh, it doesn't have CarPlay, the version, a car 
car I was in, but it had a lot of support and I plug in a USB and it recognizes there's a device, but then I have to do the selection thing. It's got USB one, USB two, maybe there's a plug in the back. And then I'm like, all right, well, I'll sync with Bluetooth. And that went okay. It took a few times, but then I synced. And then sometimes it would actually work over Bluetooth. Sometimes it would fail. Sometimes navigation instructions would talk over music, sometimes pause it and have to resume the music. Sometimes I'd have to go to a selection thing. And then sometimes it would actually call, the phone would call the car and or the car would call the phone and I would hear the sound. They're talking about you. They're like, say, get a load of this guy. It was, yeah, it would say phone call in progress and it would be playing music over a phone connection to the, st- I'm like, I don't even know what's going that's on here. That's bananas. It was crazy. So, you know, that's, that's the thing is, and that's, and that's a small example. That's not even CarPlay, but like, compa- and it, this is an iPhone. It's not like there haven't been iPhones for years. Why would, uh, why would the car system not just work terrifically? So yeah, that's, I've, I've had this direct experience. Yeah, and then and then we were talking about HomeKit, and so he already has a Nest and a Dropcam and some LifeX bulbs, and he's like, none of these are HomeKit, so yay. So yeah, it's just everything. You can't just like buy a thing and hook it up anymore. Like it's they all have these kind of service components to them, and that's introducing some some really weird compatibility issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if there was really like a solution. It was just kind of. This this is a problem, <laughs> and he's he he said I don't like when mom and dad fight, and I wish it all worked together. Oh my gosh! Well, you've been you're a big home kit advocate because you've seen you've seen the light of what's going to come. The literal light. Use home click kit to see the light by Justin yeah. the Light Column, uh, and but you know we're still. This is actually a case in which I say Apple is late. Like, I don't say that because until they announce something, it's not late. This feels like they're late. Like, they intended to have stuff out well in advance of now, didn't they? Yeah, so the the devices were late, but the dev- so Apple's like, oh yeah, the devices just ship late, but they you know don't really get into why the devices ship late. And when you talk to the device people, they're like terrified about telling you anything about you know their experience working with Apple. But <laughs> but the gist of it that I'm getting you know is that this stuff was just a lot harder to to develop than Apple thought it was going to be. Like making sure that the setup was seamless, that the security was seamless, and that the end user doesn't have to, you know, worry about this. Um, the, I appreciate if they're taking the time to make it right because of so yeah. many issues we've had with early release and setup. Uh, exactly. And this reminds me a little bit of the television thing where, you know, that we expected them. And I wouldn't say the TV thing is late because that was uh, that seemed more speculative, like we knew it was going to happen. But you remember years ago, Intel had some project, I can't remember how many years ago, was it three or four, where they were going to, you know, replace cable. They had something. They were talking to partners. They were oh, going to release nice. something that would be like cable, to be like these new a la carte sorts of deals. And yeah. they just they couldn't get anybody to sign the deals or enough people. And I think Apple's in that position where, uh, you know, you're hearing major partners at CBS, and they say the head of CBS said, "Yeah, we're just sorting stuff out." Um, but it's uh, it's not intractable. It's just hard. And I think that the HomeKit thing, maybe they overestimated how easy some parts would be uh, to get everything to work together. Um, they, I mean, I know they work with third parties, but they usually I think HomeKit is unusual because usually Apple creates its own stuff and then gives plugs for the ecosystem. But HomeKit really relies on having robust third parties. I don't know what Apple's going to make of its own. Anything? I think it's going to rely entirely on third parties for the, yeah. the stuff. All Apple's providing is the is the software framework for the but the actual consumer facing apps are made by third parties and then all the hardware devices are made by third parties. Yeah, so that's a little so, different. So yeah, they're difference. just trying to be the glue holding this all together and it's a sticky job. <laughs> Very <laughs> um, nice metaphor. Yeah, thanks. I, I just thought of that. Um, so but it's it's coming. It's trickling out. It's uh it's funny that so HomeKit uh, the, the one of the um, one of the benefits to HomeKit is that since the software framework is going to allow different devices from different manufacturers to all like work seamlessly together, all talk to each other, you can use Siri to say, okay, group these three devices together, even though they they all have different logos on them, and control them, you know, in tandem as in, as one um, as one scene. So that's really convenient, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just very complicated. Mm -hmm. But so the irony is that the first things out of the gates are not these like disparate one-off devices from companies, but rather, um, some bigger, uh, home 
connected home companies that have been in the space for a while, like uh, Lutron and Insteon, and um, HomeKit's like kind of a hubless thing. Like the the devices all talk to each other with Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, and then when you want to get to access them from outside the house, um, the Apple TV, which is always on and has Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, that kind of acts as your gateway. If mm-hmm. you're signed into your Apple TV with iCloud, then you can you can sort of talk to to, to your devices that way. So you don't need a hub, um, which is a benefit over some of these other systems. But the first products that are out are hubs. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Yeah. So you can, you, you can have, um, so the, the HomeKit devices use Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, but some of the existing, like Insteon has its own, you know, wireless kind of protocol that their devices use to talk to each other. And you can bridge that to HomeKit with a hub. So some of the first products out of the gate are just these hubs that bridge existing systems to HomeKit. So it's great. You get, you know, the Siri, you get the benefits, you get the freedom to use different apps and to add, you know, different companies' devices. But but you do have a hub, and it's kind of funny that the the first, you know, the first products in this, this supposedly hubless system are these, these bridging hubs. Although I, so, it sort of indicates maybe manufacturers' lack of trust in an Apple ecosystem. They're like, yeah, we still want our stuff to work together. We don't want to rely on you. I mean, you could argue this is kind of a very Apple thing, is that Apple uh, doesn't want to rely on third parties for its core businesses, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of the future. They don't they don't want to hook their star to other people's wagons because, uh, uh, or ha- their wagons, other people's stars, rather, <laughs> because they've had problems in the past. And that, that informs a lot of what they do now. So you could argue that the companies that are releasing hub-based solutions that are kind of portals to HomeKit may be saying, yeah, HomeKit's great, but you don't even have it out yet, and we want people to buy our ecosystem. So nice that it'll be inter- interactive, but I mean, I may be reading too much into it, but it certainly seems like uh, that could be part of the thinking because they want to sell their own gear, obviously, too. Yeah, well, and it's kit. nice, too, because these – so the Insteon – Insteon's been doing this for 30 years. So they have you know hundreds of Insteon devices, and if you just add this hub, then you can take – any of these devices, and it's like just wave a magic wand, and it's instantly HomeKit, and you didn't need to upgrade the firmware in the device. Oh, you didn't that's need to buy great, a new device. So, so it's kind of a, like you know, just add water. Like now you've got an ecosystem without having to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, certify so many HomeKit devices one at a time because the devices have to be certified by Apple as, um, you know, HomeKit compliant, made made for iPhone kind of certification program. So. So even though it's strange that the hubs are coming out first, you know, from an end user standpoint, it's it's also sort of a benefit to Apple in that, you know, like, boom, now you've got all these Insteon things and we didn't have to go through and, like, you know, certify all these light switches and stuff one at a time. Did I see this morning as we record this on Tuesday that the first HomeKit device is out? I thought I saw a story go up. Uh, yeah, there's a few. Ecobee. A... Yeah. Ecobee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they, they have a thermostat, right? Yeah, two hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, this is Jared Newman at MacWorld. Two, or two hundred and fifty dollars Ecobee three smart thermostat being sold yeah. through the Apple Store. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not the only thermostat that'll work with HomeKit, but it doesn't require a separate hub. So I think that's the that's the uh, the thing. But two hundred fifty bucks for a thermostat. I mean, yeah, you know these prices have got to drop. Um, I yeah, mean, they will. Yeah, I've been I've been reluctant. I have not installed a Nest because I don't think we have uh, well. A, I have different opinions about the Nest based on all the things I've seen, mm-hmm. and uh, and we don't have that much control in our house. We kind of have we've one firm. We don't have zones. Um, we've kind of got a drafty old house. It's been insulated, but it's got drafty windows. And uh, I don't think we have the third. Is a third wire you need? You need a white wire. Or yeah, something like you that. need a third. I don't wire. have one of those. I'm not going to run a new wire at this point. Like at some point, uh, I want a box that I stick on my um, furnace that you plug into it. And it'll, you know, I don't want to have, then I don't need to run the wires for it at all. And I assume that's at some point in the future we'll have something like that. Because it's sort of always funny to me that you need a thing on the wall that tells you stuff when ostensibly you're using smart devices. I don't need the thing on the wall necessarily. I want the thing at the furnace, but we'll see. Uh, We should pause for one moment and thank uh, the third of our pair of sponsors this week. And uh, they have something to say about compatibility because they are Red Hat, which you can find at Red Hat. Dot com. So Red Hat 
uh, is a uh, longtime maker of uh, quality Linux software. And it's sort of a funny thing because you think about open source software as something that is made by the community. And this is true. And that's one of its advantages. It's made by the community, individuals, governments, uh, corporations all contribute to making open source software better. But the flip side of that is that companies and government agencies and so forth want to have a reliable way to run open source software with support. And that's where Red Hat comes in. Every commercial bank in the Fortune 500, for instance, relies on Red Hat for enterprise software. Every department in the executive branch of the U.S. government, every airline in the Fortune Global 500, in fact, more than 90% of all the companies in the Fortune 500 understand the value of supported enterprise open source software that Red Hat brings. So rapid innovation, freedom, and interoperability are all terrific, and that's the underlying value. And then Red Hat takes responsibility for taking that technology, testing it, enhancing security, and certifying it'll work in a data center. Uh, Red Hat makes sure you get all the benefits of open source without the risk of doing it all yourself. And no one else can really make that promise, much less keep it. So visit redhat.com to see how they can help your enterprise with application development, storage, and cloud computing. Red Hat, different for the sake of better technology. And thank you to Red Hat for being the third of our sponsors this week. Uh, Susie, one last thing I think we should talk about is um, home sharing. I think we talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, did we talk about that in relation to Apple Music that home sharing was dropped? I can't remember if we brought that up. Yeah, so another shaky rollout for Apple um, when they put out iTunes 12.2, which added Apple Music to iTunes. People noticed that home sharing didn't work anymore, and that's a big bummer because they didn't they didn't mention it. You know, it's kind of like they should tell you this ahead of time. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, iTunes 12.2 is out, but if you ever use home sharing, you might want to wait because it doesn't work. Yeah, I remember. Can you remind me? Uh, I didn't use home sharing. I remember it had. Well, I tried because home sharing. Uh, you could like drag, uh, it was weird though, because it wasn't because there's sharing. Okay. So on a local network, you have sharing, which lets you share music libraries and other, mm -hmm. and all your media libraries. But then home sharing was like a way you could copy stuff. Wasn't it? It wasn't a, uh, see, I no, forget. It's, uh. it, it's, it's the sharing that you're thinking of. So but they wait, started is... calling it home sharing. It was kind of like an Apple TV thing. So the first Apple TV had local storage and it would sync things from your Mac over the Wi-Fi and store them on the Apple TV box. So if your Mac was off, you could still listen to your music and watch your videos because they were stored. Oh, right. There's a hard drive in the original one. Right. Yes. Yeah. It was bigger. It had a hard drive. Um, so then the subsequent Apple TVs ditched the hard drive and they went to kind of all streaming. So then um, like the, the network share where you used to be able to listen to other people's um, iTunes libraries over the network, they kinda, it kind of re, was renamed home sharing. And it was also sort of how you shared, how you like authorized your Apple TV to, um, you know, view the content on your Mac and stream that to your Apple TV. So home sharing was like you would turn it on, you would sign in to, to your account in iTunes and turn it on. And then you would have to sign into other devices. Yeah. So those could be iOS devices, Apple TVs, other Macs. And what if, if you were signed copying, though? Didn't, didn't I, I used to be able to used to, be able to copy stuff. You drag stuff on, but if you had home share enabled, it wouldn't sync it. It would like copy it to another device. There was some. I don't remember uh, copying. I remember there was some like business. workaround because you, you only could... do it one direction. See, this shows you how much I've used that feature. Is we have a central iTunes store, and then we in the, our storage in our house, and we use it remotely. But I, uh, I don't think we've been using. I think we've actually started using. See, I put a turn on iTunes Match. So with iTunes mm. Match, I don't really need home sharing. Yeah, you don't need it anymore. Then. Right. So I think that was the switch for me. But, ah, oh, man. And then now the remote app in iOS, um, to get the remote app to see your, your Apple TV and control it, like you have to have a home sharing turned on for that too. Oh, Jesus. So, yeah. So... So it's kind of it's kind of important. <laughs> it just stopped working, um, but Eddie Q says they're bringing it back in iOS nine. Um, he told someone that on Twitter today, but I thought it was more of a I thought it was more of an OS ten thing than an iOS nine an iOS thing. So I guess I was wrong, but yeah, it's it's not there. And <coughs> excuse me. So if you like to stream music from your Mac to your Apple TV. 
um, you know, you might be disappointed for a little while. There's still no Apple Music button on the Apple TV. Ugh. It's frustrating that this stuff is happening so piecemeal. Yeah. Like, I, I love that they have, you know, so supposedly integrated system, but if you're going to do that, it all has to, like, upgrade at once. Like, this happened when Yosemite and iOS 8 came out, and, like, for a while you could use handoff just from an iOS device to another iOS device, and then, you know, a couple months later, and, like, now you can hand off to oh, your yeah. Mac. And or I loved AirDrop, when AirDrop only worked between like devices. It yeah. It was like, why did you develop separate technology for iOS and OS 10? Part of it had to do, I think, with the uh, Bluetooth Bluetooth uh, chip compatibility and some Wi-Fi stuff in OS uh, in Macintoshes. They couldn't support they, they wanted a preponderance of devices that could do the Bluetooth Wi-Fi handoff that iOS was doing. And until, I guess, iOS 8 shipped, they didn't have enough Macs that they could do that with because uh, you, you would have uh, problems. You have to use that older compatibility mode that you can still find in OS 10, to f but only in OS 10 to find older devices. It's very confusing, I think. Um, I wrote a book that involves that. <laughs> it's like, all right, well, you do this, except when this doesn't work, then you click this thing, but you won't see that thing if you're running. It's like, oh, for crying out loud. Um, <laughs> but, that, you know, this is the same thing, uh, iTunes Match. This came up. So iTunes Match, people are like, oh, wait, does Apple Music replace iTunes Match? Like, no, it doesn't replace iTunes Match. It includes iTunes Match. But with iTunes Match... When I sync to other systems, I got non-DRM versions of right. the music. With Apple Music's version of what is Match, if I sync <laughs> to another system, music I own that's unencrypted. iCloud Music Library, they're calling iCloud it. iCloud Music, yeah. So if I, yeah. and iTunes Match still exists, right? I don't have to use the new thing. Yeah, iTunes Match still exists. And you can use it with Apple Music if you want, although oh it seems like overkill. Right. Um, but if you're, you're like, you know, I don't want any of these DRM tracks, that's iTunes Match is a way to kind of avoid that. Um, and you can also use it on its own. So Apple Music comes with this feature called iCloud Music Library, which, you know, already kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies because it's one word away from iCloud Photo Library. Oh, we know how well that works. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, iCloud Music Library is sort of the same thing. It makes the music you have on one device kind of available for streaming on another. So if you're using iCloud Music Library as part of Apple Music or if you're using iCloud, tunes match you might not have noticed this home sharing went away because you know you can do the same thing with those other workarounds but those are both paid solutions and home sharing was free yeah so it also sort of feels like maybe they're trying to nickel and dime us now they're saying oh you want your music files everywhere like it's gonna cost you it just seems like this so, organization which is kind of sad uh i mean we keep i feel like we keep having this conversation week after week about um it, it's not critique of Apple. I mean, it's like these micro critiques. You're like, look, can't you guys just get it all coordinated at once? <laughs> you, the whole point of an ecosystem, which you control all the software, hardware, and firmware is that you and services is mm -hmm. that everything works at the same time. And when it doesn't happen, you're like, you get an extra penalty for that because yeah. you have the ability to. And what it's saying is you're shipping before you're ready uh, or something went wrong. And um, neither of those things are good. Like if you can't, uh, and I realize they need, you know, they actually have a lot of competition, of course, despite the fact that they mint money. There's still a lot of, out there and they're a very hungry company, even in the position that they're in. They know that things can change abruptly uh, for you know, certain categories. And Android still has the, uh, you know, the unit advantage in terms of volume of devices sold and Google has not given up on Android or anywhere and Microsoft may be the dark horse that comes back and, and uh, with its very particular interesting sorts of offerings winds up eating up some categories. Um, Amazon, uh, we just saw this week and we'll talk about next week that Amazon is you know moving closer to having a decent desktop cloud client um, so you can use their drive and they have super cheap photo storage and data storage for their cloud. So you know, you've got all this stuff happening but you're like, look, gosh, Apple, come on. When you release a feature, <laughs> would you at least, it just feels like there's not enough quality assurance testing um, there's not enough synchronization. So something comes out and like the fact that Eddie QS say, oh yeah, it'll be back in 9.0. It's like, well, 9.0 is, you know, we'll have a public beta and it's months away. So you're asking people how to feature. And this is uh, true of, of like when pages came out, the uh, iWork suite was updated. Uh, when iTunes, various versions of iTunes come out, um, photos, like, yeah, we took a bunch of stuff away in the interest of revamping and making a better thing that's more up to date. Okay, fine. I got that. But you're taking things away that people actively want and use. I mean, they know, for instance, they revamped notes. They overhauled notes because they said 50% of users use notes, right? Some figure like that. It was 50% of people use it. Uh, iOS users use notes, some number like that. And it yeah. was, I was stunned, but I've, I mean, I use it on occasion. I have other programs uh, for it, 
But uh, so they know usage patterns. You're like, really, you know, home sharing, they probably know how many people use it or they can they can figure it out. And uh, and now it's not available. So I don't know. It just feels like a, a lack of being able to do good project management on the scale that they are required to do now. Yeah. And then they make they, you know, say like, OK, here's what's new in the thing. Like, go get it. But they don't say like, here's what we're taking away if, if you upgrade. <laughs> yeah. And then once you upgrade, it's kind of too late. Like rolling back is a huge oh, yeah. pain. It doesn't always work. So so, I, yeah, I feel like they, they need better communication about what um, what different changes are going to mean, not just as far as like what you're getting, but what you're giving up, because you need to weigh those. I mean, there's other solutions for if you were using home sharing and it doesn't work now and you're mad there's other kind of um sort of you set up a little server on your mac and then you know different devices can can access that content there's plex there's uh there's another one called subsonic so so you can try it out and you might end up liking plex better like plex works really well and then you can stream things to a, a roku or a chromecast or you know you don't have to to only use apple's apple solutions you know, I, I appreciate something that Intuit did with uh, Quicken from 2015 for Mac, which is not a great release. It's good in what it does in its core features, but it's missing a lot. They put a chart up on their site of features that were not in 2015 and were in Quicken 2007, the previous full release. And they asked people to vote, essentially, like, what's most important? We're going to add stuff back. And I thought, good gravy, a company being honest about what they dropped so people could make a fair comparison. Uh, and, you know, I wish I know it's there's just too much marketing in the world and too much worries about being weak or something. I don't know um, that they don't want to say, look, we took this out. We're planning to bring it back. Why not just say that instead of it being like Eddie Q and say, oh, yeah, it's coming back. You know, people notice it's, <laughs> people notice it's gone. Give them the opportunity to figure it out before they have to give something up. But I guess that might have tempered people's interests. Well, with uh, discussing Eddie Q again, I think it's time to wrap things up because uh, Eddie Q is the alpha and omega of uh, Apple in this podcast. Uh, and so I want to thank this week's sponsors, Casper, DiscountFilters.com, and Red Hat. And if you scroll back, you can hear the offers from Casper and DiscountFilters.com for discounts. And uh, with me this week has been Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Thanks, Susie, for talking again. Thanks, Glenn. And I have been Glenn Fleischman, and I'm still remain Glenn Fleischman, uh, senior <laughs> contributor at Macworld. And this has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 464 for July 8th, 2015. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>